0: If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on amazon.com and audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. Order it by visiting Audible or Amazon. To find out more, check out filmmakingconfidential.com and stevebalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. Each week, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today's guest is Preston Taylor, an American comedian, actor, producer, and writer from Gatesville, Texas. Preston started his illustrious career in Los Angeles with a brief appearance as himself on RuPaul's Drag Race. Preston started his comedy career in 2010 with his first-ever live performance at The Palm in West Hollywood. His debut comedy special, Farm to TV, Debuts on Tubi.
1: When did you know that you were funny? This is a this is a weird thing. It was it was the middle of high school, uh, and I'll give credit to um, a gentleman in, in my school uh, named Timmy Miller. He was known as a funny guy, but he was extremely quiet, and I was at the time the extremely quiet and very reserved. Um, And he was very good at when there was a funny moment or funny something to be said in a moment, instead of being this loud, boisterous person, he would say something under his breath, knowing only two or three people could hear it. But those two or three people would die laughing. So as I was, he was about uh, three grades older than me. So as I was coming up, that would be my theme or my way of saying, so it was like, there was always the people that needed to be the center of attention. My thing was wait until that perfect moment and then just whisper something in someone's ear to see if it was funny enough and if they would die laughing. And I, I would do that year over year over year at about the middle of high school, probably my sophomore year. I was kind of getting to a point. Where I was like, if you do this every time and the group laughs every time, maybe you have something. And so for me, that's kind of when it started percolating that, hey, maybe I'll give this a try one day.
2: When did you do your first sort of, you know, open mic or stand up or anything?
1: That's the shocking part. Uh, So my sophomore year would have been the year 2000. I never stepped on a stage until 2010, so a decade later. Uh, and, And the reason for that, I was terrified of public speaking. So <laughs> while I did all these crazy things, and yeah, you I know, like to be the life of the party, and, and you know, traveling and doing all these crazy sports things, if you told me to stand up and give a five-minute book report in front of class, I couldn't do it. I was I was very very uh, reserved when it came to that. Uh, so I actually started writing comedy in 2007, but I never I didn't perform until 2010. Uh, and the trigger, <laughs> oddly enough was me spending three months in New York City. I went there to do some runway modeling in 2010, and the people in that town are so ridiculous. (laughs) Like, and if anyone's ever been to New York, it's, you know, you're elbow to elbow on the sidewalk, you bump into somebody, it's, hey, watch where you're going. Hey, fuck you, fuck you, have a great day. And people just kept going, you know? And I was like, just baffled that. You know, people can kind of continue on with their day and night care. And then you travel on the subway. There's somebody playing the violin. Someone's selling you jewelry. And then you pop on the next car and there's a dude doing another 10-minute set. And it, it kind of got me finally out of my head of saying, bro, whether you suck or you're great, no one gives a shit. Just go do it. That's true. Really what, that's really what New York taught me. No one gives a shit. Just go do it. Was your first experience on stage in New York? My first, I came back from New York. My first experience was, uh, the Palm in West Hollywood. What was it like? Ooh, uh, that was probably one of the most terrifying days of my life. Um, I'm a perfectionist. I'm very meticulous about things. So for instance, they said, Hey, you got to bring three friends and you, you have four minutes of stage time, you know, if it's your first time. And so, uh, being a track kid, I have a bunch of stopwatches and, you know, week in and week out, day in and day out, I'm just sitting there four minutes, four minutes, trying to get four minutes down perfect, you know, and I don't want to go over my time, you know. And I'll never get walking into the room and it's a dark room and sparse and it's just a bunch of other comics, uh, which is hilarious if you, once you start going to more open mics, you realize, oh, half of the crowd is just other people trying to figure out what the hell they're doing as well. <laughs> and I end up drawing going like fourth or fifth that night and I'm very gracious because the three people that went up in front of me were so horrible. They were atrocious. Oh, it was, it was painful to watch. It was so painful that I knew that no matter what I said, I could not possibly be that bad. So they saved me. They helped me. because If I had have gone anywhere before them, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence that I had uh, going up that night. I don't know if it was practicing or what, but I, I did very well on the first show. Uh, the timing was okay. And I'll never, that was a Wednesday night. The next show I did was the following Tuesday, uh, downtown Garrett Morris, uh, was running a comedy show and I happened to jump on the show in his amateur portion that night. And I'll never forget because yeah, I still have it on film. I I do my set and I come off the stage and he and I are talking. Uh, we take a few pictures and he's like, so how many years you've been doing this? I was like, Garrett, I started last week. And he was like, whoa, 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 what? I was like, yeah, I started last week. He goes, kids, you're going to be all right if you're you're just now starting to do comedy. So uh, I think those two experiences starting off is really what helped me stick with it uh, and kind of knock off some of that scariness and and, um, nervousness that I had going into it. But hell, you know, it's 10 years later, I still get nervous every time I go on stage. Going from
2: having sort of stage fright and not being a fan of public speaking into being a stand-up comic in front of, you know, 100 or 2,000 people, whatever it is, how were you able to reframe that or get there in your mind?
1: It was easier to do in sports. uh, I played football growing up, um, When you know, by the time you met me at Kansas State, things like that. Seventy thousand people in the stands, you know, at those games, and and, uh, I had a cousin that kind of framed it in that way. He's in entertainment as well, and he goes, "We were entertaining people back then. It's just we had, you know, a a jersey on and a helmet on, and that was our focus." He goes, "But now we're just taking the helmet off, and it's just us." He was like, "We've always been in front of the audience." He goes, "So think of it like that." And I, I, um, I told my manager at one point. I can't remember any of the shows I've ever done. And kind of like most of the games you play, you're so in the moment and you're so focused that you don't remember what you're doing. You're just focused on the task at hand. So I focus on the material in my head so much that when I'm looking out, it's just black most, most of the time. I don't see anyone. Only people I can actually see when I'm looking out, even though I make it look like I'm nodding at people and say, I can only see like the first three people and everything else is a blur to me. Right. So that is that is my cheat sheet. Some people do the chicken in the underwear. Some people, I just don't see I'm fake looking at the audience the entire time. <laughs> when
2: did you get the idea to put together the farm to TV show?
1: Uh, it was about 2015, 2016. Uh, one of my friends that I uh, made the move out here with, we were we were just discussing it. And he just said, you know, when are you going to put together a special? He goes, you have enough material. You know, you travel around enough, just throw something together. You know, he goes, you can either wait and go the route of everyone else and wait until someone says, hey, let's put together a show for you. He goes, or you can just do it yourself. And suddenly streaming is starting to boom. Things are starting to happen. Um, And I happened to be in a fortunate position at the time that I I knew some people that also believed in me at the time and had seen some of my uh, performances and they just said, go for it. (laughs) It was kind of a moment of, do I have the material? Do I feel confident enough in myself? And then was it the right timing? I I just thought it was almost one of those things as if the world pushed it together. It was like, they mentioned it, they brought it up. It's something I wanted to do and had wanted to do for years. And then getting that email that night that something was happening and I had just moved back in the town. I come to an event and happened to bump into you. And I was like, all right, I got people that said they have money. Uh, I have the talent ready to go. I just bumped into someone that directs shows. I think this is all supposed to happen right now. (laughs) And so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to fight the universe, putting it all in my lap at once. Let's go do this. And that's kind of how it started coming together. Amazing. And Truly, it was really. I mean, a lot of things
2: I've noticed that are meant to be just are synchronistic and they just kind of happen on their own.
1: Even that night, I think I told you after I left that night uh, that we had our discussion, I go to Culver City to have a drink and I walk into a hotel and there's this huge, beautiful mural um, reenactment of The Wizard of Oz, which, of course, for us, you know, where I first met you in Kansas and Wamego has The Wizard of Oz Museum, yeah, so I was like, okay, not all that, just go meet this guy. I was like, really? Out of all the places in Los Angeles, I go to the hotel with the Wizard of Oz Museum. I, like, mural outside, I'll take it, right? Totally. You know you're going to do it, but how did
2: you know what material? I mean, a lot of the material was new, wasn't it? Or was some of it stuff that you've workshopped and played around with for a while?
1: Uh, that show was 50-50. The initial show that I had written out, the problem was it was way too long. Uh, the initial show that I worked on ended up being about 90 minutes long. Not only did I have to cut off about 30 minutes, but a lot of the stuff that ended up being trimmed was stuff that I had really worked on for years and years and was replaced with new stuff. So Farmer TV is unique, risky, and stupid altogether because it's 50% of material that, yes, I know, and I can regurgitate over and over, and it's 50% of material that, Some of it was being said that night for the first time and we were just hoping for the best. You know, as we talked about, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you went on the road, you did a tour and, you know, you got a lot of practice. It was like, no, like I got to do the show in pieces on the road, but most of the time that I got to like do a full hour, hour and 15 minutes was in my backyard or in front of my friends or in front of roommates. I was like, So that show wasn't performed anywhere other than that night with that audience. Uh, And I think, you know, that's one of the things that also makes it so cool and unique. I'm from a small country, uh, racist little tiny place in the South called Texas. It's backward out there. I loved it, man. I loved growing up in the country, man. The one thing I couldn't stand was idioms. Things like kill two birds with one stone. Who are these people still throwing rocks at birds? We have guns now. Shoot those motherfuckers. People always like to say, Preston, you know, laughter's the best medicine. NyQuil, by far, is the best medicine. You ever try to drink half a bottle of that and beat off before you go to sleep? Lose every time. Do y'all not remember Michael Jackson riding on top of that SUV? As soon as I saw him, I was like seven years old. I saw him riding in on that button up top on the top of that damn black SUV. I was like, wow, that is guilty i knew this billionaire we had some sexual differences so i get a call one day and he said preston i'll give you two thousand dollars if you'll come out here and pee on somebody yeah no i'll be right there ladies and gentlemen my name is preston jacob taylor
2: you must have known it was gonna work out all right i mean you know because it's like i don't know if i could just go out there with a brand new joke and not even know if it works if it lands you know
1: i wanted to reshoot that show so badly the moment i walked off the stage just because i i wanted to redo some of them with more uh but i also some people ask me after after that show like why i felt okay doing some of the new stuff in that type of situation a risky environment and I was like, because I know my own tone or because, you know, I, I, as far as flow goes, and I try to at least stay in that even when I write new material. There was a phone call I had that afternoon standing on the bridge, you know, hoping that my suit made it with my father that kind of put it in perspective for me where he goes, oh man, you excited for tonight? And I was like, no, I am extremely nervous. And he was shocked and he was like, what? You don't like, you don't get nervous. I hadn't heard you get nervous for hardly anything in years. And I was like, oh, that's right. They're thinking of old sports me. They don't, like, this is a whole different world, a whole different medium. And by the way, new jokes. And I got one shot. Like you said, it's like, we, you like, all right, we got an hour and a half of camera or, you know, a, a film. And I'm like, even if I mess up, I can only mess up a few times and go back and, you know, reshoot it. And I was like, I need to be as flawless as humanly possible with stuff that I don't know is going to work or not. I was like, so that all day long was just, feeding, even, I mean, I try to not have anxiety anymore, but any anxiety that was in there was flying around, you know, leading up to that show. And then it worked and it was funny. <laughs> I was in the whole room, I was "So somehow it worked. <laughs>
2: when you're doing something like that, what you mentioned earlier, that as soon as it's over, remember none of it.
1: It's funny, so I've said that a lot about, for instance, I've told people a thousand times, I've done so many five minute shows, I've worked on it a hundred times before the show, get to the show, it's never, not one time been how I worked on it, not once. I can remember bits and pieces of the show, but still, even in five minutes, it's most of it's gone pretty quick. But, you know, I can still remember a decent bit. I was blank after we got off of that stage that night. Like, I, I the next morning, the next couple, I was – I just couldn't remember. I couldn't remember being on stage. I couldn't remember the feeling. I was like stepping over the rope a few times. People were like, how is that? I was like, it it really is. Almost as I shut this part off and the computer's going because it's so much that you have to remember that, you know, it's almost like you're on autopilot. No, I see that. I mean, would you compare it? Because you've done
2: some acting also, like, would you compare it? um, Similarly where it's like, you just sort of become a, Different character,
1: almost. Yeah, I, I am no. I, I would say that because I am nowhere near my. I would say my day-to-day self. You know, I, I always tell we always put on masks, right? You have your work mask and your social mask and all these different uh, masks. I, I would say it's close to what I would call a competition mask. Uh, I used to be, I guess maybe I a a real asshole when it's time to do, turn on competition. But whether it was putting on spikes or you know, grabbing a basketball, is was like, once I, you stepped into the lines, everything turned off for me. It, it kind of just goes blank. And so for me, it was like the moment you do like walk on the stage or I hear my name being called, it, it goes back into that competition mode now and everything shuts off. And so I think I just kind of taught myself to do that in that environment. And I become, you know, stage Preston, you know, and now it's a show versus when I walk back off and then, you know, back to the day to day.
2: During the taping of Farm to TV, the audience was genuinely loving it. Have you ever been in a room where either the audience you felt sort of was fakely loving it or really hated it? What was like the the one of the greatest ones and the worst experiences ever that you would never want to relive again?
1: There was one night that I, I will, will go down in history and I, it counts as a bomb. I mean, hell, no one laughed. But it was the weirdest night I had ever seen because I performed at this venue countless times. And the audience there was always one of the best and one of my favorite audiences. And this was one of the most packed nights I'd ever seen there. So I'm obviously excited. Like this is going to be, boom, this is magic. My favorite place to be, my favorite audience. And it's the biggest audience we've had. And it was Cricket's. Not only was it crickets for me though, what made it really odd was maybe there was 11 us that went up that night and I was like number six. They didn't laugh for the five people in front of me at all either. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen at like, I don't know if these people didn't know they were at a comedy show and they were shocked and they just all came for dinner. I don't know what happened, but for no one to laugh at anything, it was almost as if it was a challenge. And so I was like, this has never happened. I was like, well, I know that my stuff is super funny. Fuck, they're definitely gonna at least laugh at one of my jokes. I'm two to three minutes into my one-liners that are typically killing almost any place I've been, silence. And I'm like, part of me at this moment wants to break. Part of me wants to you know, say something weird to the audience. And I was like, you know what? This is how you be a a true professional. I was like, you stay on the mark and you finish the damn job. Just keep going, finish your shit as you should and see if anything happens or turns. It did not, it didn't turn for me or anyone else that night. But by far, I'll never forget that night or that place. I don't think any of the comics will either because it was almost like an anomaly on the planet as if we weren't performing.
0: Comedian Preston Taylor. Another great guest is Academy Award nominee and Golden Globe winner, Sally Kirkland.
2: And My girlfriend had told me, Sally, you're going to have to fuck him. You're going to have to. This is the lead role
3: in The Godfather. And I said, but I've been celibate for however many months I can. I'm celibate. And she said, Sally, this is Francis Ford Coppola. You're going to have to fuck him.
0: You can hear my full interview with Sally at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Preston. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and this is the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. I'm back with comedian Preston Taylor.
1: And definitely uh, my favorite night uh, would be in the belly room uh, one night of the Comedy Store. I performed there. Hell, I don't know. That's pretty much where I lived, like starting out and growing up or my comedy career out here. Um, and I bounced back and forth between the main room and the belly room. But one night in the belly room, for some reason, the audience was packed to the house towards the end. Typically towards the end of the night, people are trickling out. Their friends have already performed. Right. Everyone's taking off. There was not a seat empty in the house. And it was one of those nights where everything is clicking and it's like, you can't miss. And, you know, it was like, I felt like I was Steph Curry and nobody was guarding me at the three point line. It was just all day. and There were just things that I was just randomly saying that hell they weren't even jokes, but it was like, because the timing was there, it was like the energy was flowing. Uh, the first couple of things had hit that the rest of the night, it was just rolling, 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 rolling. And it was like, those are the moments where, you know, one, you don't want to get off stage, but two, you remember that's why you do it, you know, because you want to get to those stages or to that stage all the time to where, you know, people are falling out of chairs and they can't help it, but, you know, chat with you after the fact. There were a couple of bits in your Farm to TV
2: show that were pretty wild. Were you nervous about saying any of that?
1: It's funny because... I just watched the show again uh, last week uh, as we're getting the teaser stuff out. <laughs> and you remember those moments. In the moment, I didn't care. Uh, and as a comic, you know, performing in and out of the different venues, eh, who cares? You're saying whatever, whatever night, uh eh, eh, who cares? I really didn't think about, man, everyone's going to see this because honestly, the only person I, I honestly care anything about on this planet is my mom. Everyone else can really eat a dick. Like, I really don't care what they, right? Like, I, so <laughs> watching this the other day, that's the only person I had in mind. I was like, God, if, if I could just cut out that part and she can watch the rest of the show, uh, definitely uh, the peeing on people, uh, <laughs> you know, because here's the thing most people go, oh, jokes. You can, like there's certain things on that stage that my mom will know which jokes are jokes and which jokes are not jokes. She knows that's not a joke. You know, <laughs> she's like, that's just, he's too detailed for that one to not be a joke. So as I'm watching it, that one, for me, just because it's a, it's a sensitive topic at the moment, but I make fun of dating websites and it's not the fat women aspect of it that I that I worried about because as I've told people listen I I've done my fair share hell I still do my fair share uh big ladies we're one and one uh but after that I and even throughout the show I say the word bitch a lot but I say that as part of a punchline during that bit and hearing it even still now I cringe just a little bit as if I was like I hope I hope that's just not the moment that the PC crowd crushes me, right? <laughs> I hope that I'm okay in that moment. But outside of that, I, I really am. Uh, I really am okay with most of it. As far as, man, eh, you can hate it or you can love it. I mean, I know I'm going to get backlash. I already got backlash from Black people about my African joke, right? And and you know, the being happy in this country versus being back in Africa. I've gotten the oh, and so you think that's what Africa's like? Oh, you know Africa's not. I was like, it's just a fucking joke. I know all of Africa isn't that way. Duh, it's industrialized and you actually have cities. I know you're all in. in it's a fucking joke. You know, I was like I don't have time to explain every, every joke and every mean thing that it's supposed to be or not be. Um, so those type of things, eh, I'll let off the hook.
2: <laughs> well, and that's got to be the roughest thing for a comic because what is a joke? Jokes are raunchy, they're rude, they're crude, they're often insulting, and that's what makes them funny.
1: Yes. Uh, I, I tell you the biggest example was uh, Gilbert Godfrey when uh, 9-11 happened. He happened to do a joke about the towers going down literally the next week. And, he, you know, he was just blackballed, right? He, you're not going to be in comedy clubs for a while. He just he got stumped on. Now fast forward, you know, 15 years after that, he goes back in, tells the same joke and people are dying and laughing. Nothing's different other than the timing of the joke, right? Now it's not insensitive because some time has passed. But to a comic, it was still funny to me when he said it 15, you know, in the moment and 15 years later. But we also have really messed up heads as comics because this is how we think and laugh at everything, right? Dark shit is funny, normal stuff is funny everything is funny to us. And it's funny to us right now. Uh, that's the difference. And, you know, it's, it is a, a, a kind of a, a dance trying to figure out today, especially um, what to say, what not to say, what's going to end up being retweeted or, you know, taking out of context. And then suddenly you're blackballed and you can't perform anywhere. I think we've gotten to an area where it, it has become really hard to walk this line. And it's why I think I've always gravitated towards and loved Dave Chappelle, because what he does is he can go into and hit really, really sensitive and hard topics, but he also does it in a way where he educates you. And he educates you in a funny way so that you want to almost take offense But it's also so damn funny and true that you can't do anything about it, right? Kind of like Carlin, right? George Carlin used to do the same thing. It's like, he would take something so hard and raw that you really didn't want to hear, but he also simplified it and made it so funny that you're like, ah, damn it, he's right. Ha ha ha, I can't help but laugh. Um, And I think that's really what you have to do to soften the blow. If you've noticed anybody that comes out and is just too direct or too hardcore these days, I mean, you're out of there. It's just, you know, it's over. Uh, even if it is a joke, right? You can't make jokes about LGBTQ, right? You can't say certain people, oh, you're not supposed to say the N-word on stuff. I was like, listen, I, I'm saying there all the time. I get, I said it all over the stage, right? It, it's just, it's it's a matter of understanding your audience. First of all, there's certain jokes that I've told people all the time. There's jokes in California that I don't do in Texas. There are certain jokes in Texas that I wouldn't do in California, right? Because they don't make sense to do there, Um I don't do political jokes. Why? Because I don't want to alienate myself between half the audience. But as far as censoring myself or censoring something I think should be said, if I feel the need or if I feel like it needs to be said, I'm saying it. I'm going to say it. I'm never going to censor on stage because I feel like that's the final frontier. Like as a comic, we're the people that are supposed to say the uncomfortable things. That's our job, right? Yes, we're there to make you laugh, but at some point we're going to point the finger back at you and make you, you know, hopefully realize some stuff along the way. I, um, and I think that's, what's always made, you know, the danger fields, the Seinfelds, right. Those people the Eddie's popular because they could talk about things in a way that you weren't allowed to Uh, take uh, my last stop on my uh, tour before farm to TV was in Portland. And it was one of my favorite stops because everywhere I went, they would, either asked me to stay on longer or come back or do more time. And I didn't understand what was going on. And one of the comics pulled me aside and he goes, no one does the material that you do, you know, talking about race, you know, talking about religion, growing up, things like that, or saying some of the stuff you set up here because everyone's so worried about you know, intruding or, or, you know, worried about certain groups. And, you know, right now, Portland's going through such a uh, <laughs> an open time of, like, uh, they want to fight everything, so no one wants to say anything. Is like, oh, well, I'm from out of town, so I was just up here doing my show. I don't know any different, you know. But for them, it was refreshing to hear someone just say whatever
3: the hell he wanted to say.
2: Does anybody have any questions for Mr. Preston Taylor?
3: Yeah, I had a, a question. How are you doing, Preston? Uh, Hi, how's your... it going? Good. Um, I had a question uh, about, uh, so when you use, I know obviously you said you use the N word, like in your, um, you know, comedy stuff and it probably riles some people up. Do you feel like when you use it, that it, uh, it uh, gives other people, um, how do I say it? It, It's like, Oh, I heard it from him. So I'm going to use it now or uh, like, how do you feel about that?
1: So I use a very, It's been a part of, like, the word nigger has been a part of my vocabulary forever, right? So for me, that word is fine. I know, on the other hand, as I mentioned uh, in the show, at least twice I said the word nigger, which I know just hits people. It just does. And it doesn't matter if you're black, white, right? It doesn't matter. It hits everybody. Uh, But my problem with that has always been, and I got this from a teacher of mine that I I love Miss Allen to death. She was my fourth grade science teacher. She said, I'll never forget this lady. She said to me, Preston, you're not a nigger because you're educated. And she, saw she, said the literal, she said the literal definition of the word is an uneducated person. And that's always stuck with me that if you don't even know the meaning of the word, you're using it wrong, right? You're only using it in a vicious manner. So I've always told me, unless I'm using it in a vicious
3: manner, eh."
0: Yeah. I,
3: I feel like it's so controversial like it's like if somebody uses it even like seems like everybody uses the word and they say it with the a at the end but it's like oh okay if you just say it with the er a sudden, oh you know people get fired over that or they're like you know and it's one of those things i, I don't know where it, it lies because you know I, i'm asking you because it's is it cultural appropriation if other people use it or i'm pretty sure you've heard other people use it in a brotherly oh, this- way or just you know
1: this is why I think I'm going to have so much fun in Farm to, Dan- Farm to Dangerous. It's because I plan on educating people in a really fun way in the sense of it's a hard perspective for Black people to take. But remember, if we came here on boats and when we were brought here, we were in a new country, in a new place. If we're coming to a new country, in a new place, and at the time they brought us out of jungles and out of the middle of nowhere, we, we didn't speak the language. We didn't know two plus two at the time. We were extremely uneducated people to a group of colonists and educated people. To them at that time, what we were by the definition. Niggers, we were uneducated people. We didn't know. At the time, it was a correct statement for them, but for it to turn into this you know, thing of, oh, this big powerful word that's so negative, I was like, well, no, we're well past that part. Do you not know what two plus two is now? Do we not know how to read? Are we educated? And so the fact that, like, people still give it the power that shouldn't be there has never made sense to me. Uh, and, and to your point, that to me isn't the bad word. Like, how is that the bad word? Let me get this straight. Everybody else in every other culture and let's just so there's wetback, uh, right? There, there's redneck, honky, right? Cracker uh there's 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 chink right or, or or right right there's all these other things nigger's not our bet coon porch monkey those are racist terms to me right i'll get upset or offended if you call me a coon or a monkey nigger's just a bad use of vocabulary at the end of the day right to me and so i feel like at some point we have to wake up and realize like bro it at, at one point, it had a meaning. Now it's just pointless unless you give it that aggression. But you can say anything aggressive. Hell, rabbit. Right. And now you feel like I just called you. Oh, so, well, you just called me a rabbit, bro? <laughs> so I, because I think for so long, people didn't have a way to, right. Well, you've heard it over the years being talked about, you, you know, that, oh, well, why do we still get this word power? Why do we do this? Why, and I was like, I have no clue other than people just won't go back and talk about it for real. It's like, listen, at one point, by definition, we were. By definition, at some point, we've stopped. So we should also realize that and get over it. If people are still calling you that, guess what? They're the nigger.
2: Now, when I met your family, they all were seemed very supportive. Were
1: they always? Uh, I am very fortunate that, you know... It's funny because I lived in such a small community. You know, I only knew what I knew. I didn't know that there was just so much world outside. When I got to college, um, orientation at at Mac that first day, right? All the parents are there and all the students. This is my first kind of experience outside of Gatesville. And my friends, my pack, the way people were talking to their family and to their parents and like that first couple of months, like the shock I got of like what other people's home life was like. Made, I mean, I probably called my mom the first two, three years of college on a daily basis and told her how gracious and thankful I was because I don't I was like, wow, I must have like the most loving mother, grandmother, like combination on the planet because we had nothing and they sacrificed everything for me and my brothers, you know, it was because they cared about us and they believed in us so much that, you know, they they were basically spoiled us to what they could do. And it was, uh, you know, it was almost putting two and two together, seeing that correlation. But even in the moment, we knew it was kind of unique that they kind of put everything on the line to see how far they could push us. Um, and, you know, I think even at the time, my little brother and I both knew that was a unique thing to get from parents that believed in you and loved you so much. What
2: were some anecdotes or stories that you can share? Just growing up stories. I mean, just some fun, crazy, wild, hilarious
1: stories? Well, <laughs> well, of course, there, there are always the, uh, even in the show, there's the ass whooping stories, uh, but there was, <laughs> which are just so abundant uh, in my family. But there, there's definitely one where my mom's bed is set up. Uh, she has windows that just go around her entire bed. And of course, as kids, don't jump on the bed, don't jump on the bed. But mom has a king size bed. And, of course, she, she works at the prison. She's working eight-hour shifts. We're alone all day during the summer. So we're having this contest to see who can go the furthest jumping from, you know, one part of the bed to the other. And I jump out of the window, just completely out of the window into the backyard, which, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. I know an ass whooping is coming, you know. So here it is. Mom is coming home. And she wants to know who jumped through the window and my little brother rats on me instantly. I've never sat on a toilet so long in my life trying to avoid an ass whooping. I had to be on that toilet for four to five hours. And my mom is just like, you know, you have to come out at some point. Like she didn't even come in. She didn't make me come out. She just would like walk by here and there, just giving me a quote into the bathroom, just reminding me that the ass woman to still coming the moment I come out of the restroom. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> it was moments like that, and we look back, we have the best fun, and then we laugh because we also know that she did those things because she loved us, right? Um, she, uh, I think I told that story during the show about uh, the first time I was called the N word, right? Along with the spare of the rod, spoil the child type of situation, she was also a very strong woman. And um, we always recognized that. I, mean, I had two older brothers, older siblings, half brothers uh, that she had to be pretty stern with. And so being younger, we saw that a lot. Um, and just remembering some of the things she would tell them, I'll never forget that day. As I mentioned, I'm on the phone and talking to a set of friends, and I just never forget her sister hears who she's on the phone with and just runs. you can hear her tell her parents in the background, Hey, I can't believe she's on the phone with a nigger. And, you know, once again, I'm nine, I have no clue really the power of the word, but I knew it wasn't right. And as I hang up the phone, you know, I just walk straight into my mom's room and I tell her what happened. And, you know, she sits me down in her chair that she always talked to us in and <laughs> I'll never forget, she just looks at me and she goes, your name is Preston Jacob Taylor. If anyone ever calls you anything outside of that, that's their own ignorance. She was like, and as you know, we're we're educated people. We don't deal with ignorance
0: in this house. And it's like that line has stuck with me forever. Comedian Preston Taylor. You can see Farm to TV on Tubi. And follow at PrestonTaylorComic on Instagram. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe. And when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically. And you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please remember to rate and review. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Takanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like answered on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going.